0: McAlowitz. He's the author of Profit First, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and his newest release, Clockwork. And by his thirty fifth thirty fifth birthday, Mike has um, had founded and sold two companies: one to a private equity firm, and another to a Fortune five hundred company. And today, he is running his third. And um, you know, this is really one of my favorite interviews that I've done. I don't do, as you know, the Hands Off CEO podcast isn't all just interviews. We don't do a lot of interviews, actually but this has been one of my favorite interviews because he's just really engaging. He has a lot of great um knowledge and expertise to share, but he he does it in, in a very um down to earth, entertaining, engaging kind of way and you know, I was introduced to Mike through his his book Profit First. And one of the things I loved about his book is that I was sitting here listening to the audio version of it and I I would think that a book on business finance would be boring and um it actually—that's been my experience with every book on business finance that I have actually read. It's just in, incredibly boring. Tends to be um, very highbrow and almost a little bit um, condescending. And his book is everything but that. Um, he's also sharing about his new book, Clockwork, and he has some some um, really great concepts to share about how to um, to really isolate the most important pieces in the business so that it can run without you. And um, he uses um, some ideas around the queen bee, and um, you'll get to hear more about that on the podcast. But um, really, this is one of my favorite episodes. I'm so excited to have Mike on this podcast. Um, and um, without further ado, here is the interview. I have Mike McAllowitz here on the Hands Off CEO podcast. Welcome, Mike.
1: Mandy, thank you so much for having me.
0: It is my pleasure, and um, you know, I was first introduced to your work from the Profit First book that you first wrote. I shared it with uh, countless people. I implemented it into my own business the first year. I think we doubled profit. Um, oh, you did profit the first year. We did that, yeah. So, um, and you know what I love about this, this system, the cash flow management system, is that is that. Um, you know what, when we were first implementing this, we had all these breakdowns with our accounting systems and like everything working together. And, and it was so interesting because I had actually never had a better perspective on, 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 um, our financial health in the business, even though we actually didn't have access to our books.
1: Isn't that, isn't that wild? It is. I had the same experience. You know, I started, I wrote profit first, uh, I started working on it for myself 10 years ago, 11 years ago is when I started doing it. and uh, I mean, he wrote the first book five years ago. But very quickly, I realized, wow, I can drive profit. I can have better cash management without ever looking at, a, a, at an accounting statement. And the funny thing is my accountant came to me and said, that. he's like, wow, he goes, you really, he goes, you've really mastered your accounting finally, Mike. You figured it out by not figuring it out, just not actually looking at it. It's kind of coincidental, ironic.
0: <laughs> um well you know i don't I don't think that that's like the ideal way of're not ever looking at it but it's but it's good to show that like you can manage your cash flow and yeah. it, and it doesn't take very much time it's like just two times per month and yeah. you go and distribute it- well, can, do you want to share a little bit about that the cash flow that the profit first cash flow management system
1: yeah for sure for sure so it's based upon uh putting profit first and and The traditional method we're taught is that profit comes last. And we don't say those words, but the formula we use, it's based upon GAAP, which is generally accepted accounting principles, says sales minus expenses equals profit. And we use the vernacular of calling profit the bottom line or the year end. And in all those cases, the formula or the words we use, we're saying profit comes last. That's the bottom line. It's the final consideration. But we have to understand from a behavioral aspect, that is very damaging. Now, logically, it makes sense, but behaviorally, it's wrong because when we, we would never say, you know, I'm going to start putting my health last or I love my family so much, I've decided to put them last. You, you would never say those terms. It's the reverse. My health comes first. My family comes first. The important things come first. So the old formula says the important things are sales and expenses. So most businesses are focused so hard on ramping sales and are driving expenses to facilitate growth of those sales and they stay stuck in this trap. And as the business grows in sales, it actually becomes more and more stressful, and there's less and less potential for profit. So what we do in the profit-first formula is we flip it. We say sales minus profit equals expenses. And now I'm saying what's important is the growth of the organization through sales and the sustainability of the organization, the health of the organization through profit. And what's left over is available to uh, provide for the expenses and the operations of the business. And um, how we do this is, is every time a sale comes in, we take immediately a predetermined percentage of that sale as profit. So maybe it's 5 or 10 or 15 or 20%. In the book, I talk about percentages you can target, but that's not so important. You just pick a percentage, usually start small and build over time. And now, when that money comes in, you immediately take the, per- the profit, you hide it away from your business, then the rest drips down to expenses. And now you have to work it with- within the confines of what's really available for your business. Just one last component is, you know, many people do what's called bank balance accounting. It's what we're talking about. You log into your bank account, you see how much money you have, and we take action based upon what we see. The problem with that method is that when money comes in, say we got a $10,000 deposit today, um, we look at that money and say, wow, I got $10,000. Then we immediately look at our expenses. Oh, I got those bills that have piled up. Oh, I got to pay my employees. Oh, I had to pay it down that credit line. And all that money flows out very quickly. And the next day, there's no money in there, and we can't pay ourselves, and we start to resent our business. So it becomes very bipolar, excitement of deposit, and then the money goes away right away. In profit first, what we do is when that money comes in, we first carve it up to its responsibilities before using it. So we allocate it to multiple accounts. In the book, I talk about the five foundational accounts, but we move it to different accounts. And you'll see that when $10,000 comes in, when you get to the operating expense of the business, you probably don't have $10,000, maybe only $4,000 for that. The rest is responsible for taxes and paying the owner and paying shareholders, which is different sometimes than the owner operator. And so this money gets allocated out and then you see what you really have to work with, not $10,000, maybe it's $4,000. And then you have to force your business in a healthy way to operate off of what's truly available to sustain that profit. It's a form of reverse engineering profitability.
0: I love that. And um, I was sharing with my clients that you were coming on the podcast and I asked them, well, what questions do you have for Mike? And um I had a a fairly in- oh, not fairly a very intelligent questions. Oh, I did I did get some ridiculous oh, questions. Oh, I love ridiculous I'm
1: like, questions.
0: I'm not asking that. It was like this this really complicated ratio question. I'm like, oh, okay, I-
1: okay.
0: I'm not asking that. Nobody cares about that but you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but one of the questions was that that same idea of like in, in your book, you talk about making um eating off of a smaller plate. Yeah. And um one of the one of our clients observed that. That you know, in weeks that they, they're really busy, their employees get a whole lot done. Yeah. But weeks that they're slower, they don't get nearly as much done. Yes. So one of the questions he has is, how do you apply this same principle to managing your employees so that there's more urgency and incentive to them for them to get more done?
1: Yeah. So here's the principle that drives that. It's called Parkinson's Law, and so basically, Parkinson was a theorist in the 1950s studying human behavior. What he found was that as a resource expands in its availability, it's human nature for us to consume more of that resource. So I share an example of how we use toothpaste in the book, but when it comes to money, uh, the more money is available, it is our human nature to consume and use more money. We feel much more empowered and emboldened when we have more money, so we start spending it more flippantly. It's a subconscious behavior for many of us we don't even realize. Well, he also argued, actually, Parkinson devoted the most of his studies to actually utilization of time we notice that as we have more time to complete something, we actually consume more time to get it done. and this isn't just employees, this is true for all human beings. Like you know if you're given like six months to prepare for a final exam in college, uh, many of us, myself in particular, delayed and waited, and it was really the night or two before when crunch time kicks in, and that's when I start cranking it up. So it took me six months to get there. Now, if I was told you know this afternoon, mike your final exams tomorrow." immediately I'll go into overdrive and I'll start cranking right away. So as we compress availability time, we become much more anxious because the completion is pending to get the work done. So that's just the explanation of the theory. And that's why employees are more productive when there's more demand placed upon them because we got to get through this stuff. If there's not much work or demand put on us, oh, I can serve Facebook for a little bit because i got time and I can just chill for a little bit. So one consideration is actually amplifying the amount of work responsibility they have. But be cautious because they, just like us, are human beings. We actually need rest. When I was writing clockwork, I talked about these these four Ds. I found, due to my colleague, Adrian Dorsen, there's a fifth D called distraction. Humans need pieces of distraction to relieve uh, and, and recharge our batteries. Now, I can go too far. We're surfing Facebook for three, four hours, and that can become damaging. So you have to balance that out. But here's a second approach. I am a huge fan of part-time labor. So uh, my colleagues, we have 14 employees here. We're just doing the count recently. Eight of the 14 are part-timers. So we have four, uh, six, six full-time people, eight part-timers. And the part-timers perform even better than the full-timers because we give the part-timers still eight hours of work every day, but they come in for three or four hours based upon their schedule. So we still give them eight hours of work. They get it done in four hours because – they have to get done. They have to leave. The recharging then is on their own dime, if you will. When, you know, whatever they're doing outside of work, that's where they recharge. So you know, people can work pretty, I found, diligently for a three to four hour period. And so why not just hire them for that three to four hour period and hiring someone for eight hours where I need to recharge them on my dime? So it sounds a little you know, aristocratic. I don't know what the word is, but it sounds a little uh, controlling. But I did find part-time employees wow, the productivity is insane, insane.
0: That is a really interesting perspective because I have, um, I have, a, I have concerns sometimes with part-timers because the commitment level. And, and maybe that's because there's not enough of the requirement. Like these are the hours that you're working and maybe it's more of like instead of a contractor, it's, it's, a, it's a part-time employee where you're yeah. really de- defining the hours. So um, th- that's an interesting perspective.
1: Well, I'll give, I'll give you, a, there's a, a tool that may help. If you're concerned about hours, that, that means you're maybe concerned about, are they dictating enough income to take this job seriously? Maybe. What I found is the biggest driver for my part-timers is not income. In fact, even our ads say, if you're looking for a job to earn great money, this is the worst job ever, stop reading. If you're looking for a job that uh, you can walk to the office because we'll, we'll run ads locally, or if you want an environment that you just want to decompress. Actually, one employee said, I want mindless work. She goes, I got so much going on at home. I want to get out of my house, but I want to do stuff that doesn't require me to think. Uh, and and she, her name's Amy. She loves her job here. And she works for three, four hours a day and is probably one of our top performers. The interesting thing, thing is loyalty too. You think, you know, full-time employees are the loyal ones. Amy, part-time employee, uh, one day I was leaving at five o'clock and Amy was sitting at her desk. I'm like, what are you doing here? She's like, ah, oh, we had a project that uh, needed to get done. And I just wanted to come in and get it done for us before the weekend came about. It was just it was unbelievable. So I think we just need to be very in tune with what our employees' ambitions are, and realize that money is not always the big motivator for them. And if we can align the job to serve what serves them, um, you will get extraordinary things out of both full time and part time people. I believe.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you, and I, I do think I, I try to avoid um, hiring anyone that money is their main motivator yeah, because smart. because as, as soon as they then another job comes along that will pay them more, they're gone.
1: Of course, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's very smart.
0: Yeah. So um, another question from one of our other clients, and I, I thought this was a good question as well, the, the, what is the most important leading indicator to track in a company that is, um, the, you want to run without the CEO and that's scaling?
1: The most leading indicator is this concept called the QBR. Uh, there is, in, in Clockwork I wrote about this, but there is a core function within every single business that the business, business is literally hinging its success on but the vast majority of small businesses don't know it. So we got to pinpoint it. And here, I'll give it by an example and I'll tell you how to pinpoint it. And it's actually something I didn't even include in the book. This is a faster, easier method. So I was studying uh, FedEx and I like to use them as an example because they're a global brand. And FedEx, um, they have a single promise, a core promise. And we all do. In FedEx's case, their promise is to deliver packages on time. Now I realized FedEx also... As printing and packaging services and other stuff. And they do all that stuff. But the biggest reason FedEx gets hired is I want to ship a package or an envelope, and I want to make sure it's there on time. So we all have this promise. That's the thing. We, first thing we have to look at is what is the singular biggest promise I'm making to my customers? And some people don't know it. Some people say, well, it's quality service and price and expediency. No, no. What's the one biggest thing you're offering customers? And if you don't know, ask a group of your customers saying, What's the one biggest reason you work with us? And you'll start finding a common thread among all your customers. Once you know that one thing that you're promising, we then just look one layer back and say, what's the activity that supports that promise? What's the What are we doing in the office to make that promise a reality? And for FedEx, just going back to that example, FedEx uh, does a lot of things. They have customer service, they have uh, logistics and so forth. The number one thing that makes sure Packages get delivered on time is the logistics, the movement of packages. And so, FedEx, I would argue today, could say, you know what, we're going to amplify logistics. We're going to be so attuned to it that we're actually going to cancel any customer service. We're not even going to answer the phones, but those packages will never, ever, ever not make it on time. What would happen to FedEx? Well, if we fast forward one week, I bet you a few complaints would file in. I've called the Customer service line just keeps ringing. They don't answer. But packages are being delivered on time. I don't think the consequence would be that major. Conversely, FedEx could say, you know, screw logistics. Like, that's overrated. Let's just go all customer service. We're going to just be the friendliest company ever. If you call FedEx by accident trying to order a pizza, we'll ship it to you. And I would suspect within one week, FedEx would be on the brink of going out of business. Could you imagine you, 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 you put a package out, they don't pick it up? Uh, you put a package it's in their system and they don't know where it is. And they say, we don't know if it'll ever get delivered. FedEx will go out of business overnight. The core function, that's the QBR, uh, stands for queen B-roll. That's the core element that the business is hinging its success and ultimately its thrivability is based upon that. We have to do the same thing. Determine what your biggest promise is, peel back the onion one layer and say, what's that core function making that promise reality? Then, To get to this question, the owner needs to extract themselves from any activity or responsibility in that place. Other people, other systems need to be supporting it. The owner should keep an eye on it, just like everyone else. And if if it falters, action needs to be taken. But if the owner is maintaining the QBR, the owner is a conjoined twin to the business and can never escape.
0: I love that way of thinking of that, actually, because it's a, it's a little bit counterintuitive because if you think the most important part of the business, the CEO should be the one in charge of that, but you're actually right. saying the opposite.
1: Right. Yeah, the CEO is, you know, I think execution of a C, or the roles of a CEO in, in the true definition is a vision, a clear outcome that wants to be attained. And then it's the organization of the resources. That's the people, it's the technology it's the vendors, it's even the customers, organizing all those elements to move in cohesion toward that goal as efficiently as possible. The CEO, there's, a dedicate, there's a statue dedicated to CEOs, I believe, uh, Michelangelo made the thinker. And here's some guy sitting on a rock, he's naked, don't, you don't have to do that part, but here's some guy sitting on a rock just thinking. And that is the most important element of CEO ship is we need to spend time thinking. I've yet to find, I'm looking, I've yet to find a statue called the doer. You know, some guy pulling his hair out with a phone in his hand and, you know, sweat coming down. There is no doer statue, yet many CEOs, all of us men and women, aspire to be extraordinary doers. No. Let's be extraordinary thinkers.
0: I love that. I love that. And it this as you're explaining that, you know, it's something I wanted to point out before we get into the, the clockwork part of, of this Um is your profit first book, is this is like the first finance book that I actually read that was useful, immediately useful, that wasn't is so dry that I couldn't get through it, right? Because some, some of those books are painful.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and I actually listened to the audio, your oh, audio awesome. book of that. And it was it was entertaining. Can, I, can you actually believe? I can't believe that a, a book on finance was actually interesting. So
1: <laughs> That means the world to me because I, 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 for me to consume books, I need to be engaged. And so just hearing, thanks for saying that.
0: Yes. Yes. You're welcome. So I would, I would highly recommend, um, getting the book profit first, the, the uh, that chart in that, that you, you show based on the different levels of revenue, yeah. how much percentages, um, that was everyone I share that with, they're just like, their mind is blown because, um, what, what I love about that is, is that it gives CEOs the permission to actually pay themselves what they should be, yeah. and also to there, there's like this, this clear framework to say, well, this is this is what our standard is, and that's how you can explain it to your staff and not feel like you're being greedy.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we did some research. We looked at um, about a thousand different businesses, Mandy, and these were the. Uh, industry elite, meaning they were the authorities in their industry, and it was an agnostic study. We, we didn't look at any one specific industry. It was pizza shops and professional services and manufacturers and every type of business we could categorize except for government. And we left them out intentionally. And in this study, we found that based on different revenue ranges, that the owners of the business took different levels of income the businesses, the fiscally elite achieved different levels of profitability and there was different operating thresholds. And what's interesting is a micro business, the owner, because the business is so dependent on the owner, takes a substantial and should take a substantial salary. Because in the very early stages, the business is the owner. But over, as time goes on we bring on employees and more infrastructure and so forth, the owner's pay as a percentage will decrease. But we also found is it actually increases as a Uh, As a a dollar amount because the business is bigger. So it's a smaller piece of a much bigger pie. Um, And then the most fascinating thing I thought was companies that hit is usually between 25 and $50 million in revenue. Those are big, small businesses. Businesses that hit that size, the owner was actually in many cases, not engaged in the business whatsoever. And all they were doing was being an owner of the business, getting a shareholder distribution, but not getting any salary, if you will, for operating the business. So this is an interesting arc of how a business grows.
0: Yes. Um, this brings up to me this question that I, I run into with a lot of people, a lot of CEOs who I speak to. And it's this question of, should I scale my company? Mm-hmm. And there's like these awkward stages that go at, as you go in between these different stages in this chart that you're laying out here where like you're making more and making less. So like, how do you manage that? You know, how do you know, should I, should we really take it from, from one stage to the next and how much money should I be making at each stage? Do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah,
1: I, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. So whoever said bigger is better. That guy is a real jerk total dick because it's a lie. Like whoever said bigger is better. It's a lie. Here's what I believe, Mandy, that the right size business can find us. And I believe we really need to be attuned to what speaks with us. You know, I I was just down at the, uh, shop, um, the newspaper stand and there's Sarah Blakely on the cover of anchor. I can't remember what magazine was, but there she is billion dollar CEO. Right. And for a second, I'm like, oh, I'm not a billion dollar CEO. I suck. I need to be the next Sarah Blakely. I got to drive myself forward. Where, what's wrong with me? And this competitive spirit kicks in. I think we, the exalted uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs of the world are lottery winners. Now, I, I'm not discounting what Sarah Blakely did. What she did is phenomenal. Great timing, great product, great leadership. Extraordinary. But also, I believe there's... as Thousands of people, just as talented, maybe even more capable than Sarah Blakely, and won't have that billion-dollar business because their product isn't in the right place or the right time. But it's a product that's needed and desired, and maybe it's a five hundred thousand-dollar business or a hundred thousand-dollar business or maybe a few million. I, I don't know, but I know that it's still needed. So for us to aspire just to be big as kind of like a keep up with the entrepreneurial Joneses, I don't think is a good behavior. I think what we need to realize is. What brings us joy? How are we serving our clients that, that satify, satisfies them? What's good for us? And, and realize as a business gets bigger, our role changes. You know, if you like getting your hands dirty, there's a certain size that you just can't anymore. And you, you have to be a business manager and a cheerleader for the organization or um, a therapist for your employees. So your role is going to change as you grow and you're. it's fully within all of our rights to say, you know, I... I've hit a point where I love I'm the just loving it. I'm stay.
0: I think that's really profound. Yeah. And I think it really comes right down to your vision of what you want to create it with your business too. Wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, totally. Totally. So, you know, it's funny. My, my, I have a very grand vision. I, I, my life's goal purpose is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. This is the fact that so many entrepreneurs are seen one way, but the reality is another. The day you start your business, all your friends are like, oh, you're a millionaire now. You sit on the beach drinking Mai Tais. And the reality is I have no money and I'm working my tail off. And so there's this gap I call entrepreneurial poverty. I believe entrepreneurs deserve to be wildly successful, have all the time in the world. Because if we do that, we will empower our employees, our communities, our world to have that same experience. We are the leaders in that. So I believe entrepreneurs need to close this gap for entrepreneurial poverty. That's my big, massive Audacious, hairy vision. The reality is, if I try to do a traditional business to do that, maybe I don't know what that would be a, a school, a university, I don't know. That sounds so burdensome, so laden with overhead, so horrible for who I am, I could never do that. So I said, this is what I want to achieve. What's the vehicle I can do it through a very thin organization? And it came very clear, you know, a decade ago, an author. If I'm an author, I can sell a product, a you know, $17 book that if I can persuade people to read this and it serves them, um, it can catch momentum because it's only 17 bucks. It's a low investment point, high return. And I can, there's, like I said, there's 14 employees here. We're tiny. It's a tiny little business. And, um, and we, can, we can maybe achieve that vision. There's 180 million small businesses in the world. We've just scratched the surface on our impact, but maybe through books, and stuff we're doing right now, I can actually play out that vision I have, but not have to have a burdensome heavy company.
0: yeah, I love that so um when you're you're sharing about the eradicating entrepreneurial um poverty, what I'm hearing with the profit first book is that 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 really well the the surge book and some of the other the pumpkin pan plan books, I think that was really seemed to me like it was really about growth and just like it being was. able to create enough growth. And then profit first is about, okay, how do you manage this money to make sure you take as much home as possible? Right. And then this third book clock works, not third, this third category yeah. is now, and now how do we have more freedom with that? Now how do we have more time off and really have this company that is maybe this asset that actually can run without you?
1: Yeah. So there was uh this tendency I noticed. So I started interviewing all these different companies and there was this tendency for what I call the superhero syndrome. I remember speaking to this woman, Robin, specifically, and I could see it. This is where the owner feels that they need to carry the business on their back, that the harder they work, the more the business will grow. And the funny thing is, for a very small business, that's actually true for a period of time. If you work harder and longer, you will generate more revenue, the business will grow at a certain point we start getting diminishing returns and then it actually reverses and starts going back down because we are working so hard that we're exhausting ourselves. We start uh, making errors. We haven't built systems. If we get sick, the business dies. So what we need to do is uh, very quickly alleviate ourselves from doing the work. So, and I call it the superhero syndrome because if you think about, you you know, movie superheroes like, you know, Wonder Woman or like Superman, Um, first that comes to my mind would be Superman. I think in Superman, what happens is there's two kind of insidious problems. One is the only way for mankind, our plan to protect ourselves, is to get Superman to help us. And the more dangerous it gets, the more Lex Luthers that are out there, the more we're like, oh, please, Superman, come and save the day. Superman actually is disabling the military and the police from protecting us. He's actually forming dependency. And uh, if you ever watched the, the Batman television show, like I grew up with that, you know, the commissioner, the chief, the commissioner of police had a bat phone to say, oh, we're desperate again. And it had a direct line with Batman. So this unhealthy dependency occurs because of the superhero syndrome. The other thing is there's a wake of damage. I don't know if you watched the Wonder Woman movie. You know, she's bling, blocking all these bullets. And if you look at the city that she was fighting in, Every building gets decimated, mass destruction, buildings collapsing. She defeats the enemy, but the consequence is the destruction. And and they don't have the, you know, Wonder Woman 2, the recovery of all the damage over the next 50 years as mankind had to rebuild these buildings. They don't show that part of the movie. But we as superheroes to our business, we swoop in, we save the day, leaving a wake of damage behind us that our employees need to recover from. So the goal of clockwork is to defeat that superhero syndrome. It's not to be a superhero. It's to be a super visionary. Clarity on outcome, choreograph the resources to get there, empower your team to carry the load.
0: Love that. So this brings me to the point with, with this. So, so the clockwork idea, um, the, the methodology, yeah. what kind of businesses is it right for? <laughs>
1: So if I say any business, that's, that's too generic. Any business can do this. Um, it's ideal for small business. So um, larger businesses actually can use it, but they often have to get into more, I believe, sophisticated techniques. So there's books like Six Sigma uh, or some of these lean principles, which I studied intensely. It's funny. I've interviewed a lot of small businesses and said, oh, we're lean. And I studied the business and said, you're so far from lean, it's almost unbelievable. You're not following the principles. So you got to be a small business. So if you're doing over anything over twenty five million dollars in revenue, forget it. I think it's ideally Clockwork is suited for businesses that are sub five million. In my opinion, I think you can get the biggest impact. Um, Also, I think you can start surprisingly soon, and I think the sooner the better. So there was brand new startups that I was working with, and as we were testing out, we started testing out Clockwork. And even though they're a solopreneur, what we realize and and hopefully educate them on is that there's other resources around you besides employees. If you have no employees, you still have your clients. And what can we do with our clients to build efficiency to the outcome you want? You know, can they be doing some of the the data entry in the beginning of a relationship uh, so we don't have to do it? And there's these opportunities there. We found that vendors, really understanding how your vendors work Often, there's services and products they're offering that you're already paying for it that you're not utilizing and can bring 5 10 even 15% more efficiencies to your business. You know, that can save a full, almost a full day of work uh, if you can just leverage your vendors and clients collectively. So, the smaller you are, the better. But also, we need to also start shifting the mindset. When you're a micro-entrepreneur, you've got to do the work. But the trap is if all you do is the doing, you'll never go to the business. So we try to get this Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule of 80% doing in the business, 20% of the designing work, and uh, just keeping that balance in place. So a solopreneur is still always future thinking, even if they're just doing the work themselves. Then when they bring on that first virtual help or part-timer or or even full-timer, now they're doing a little more design work as that employee starts doing more of the doing work. And the... Uh, entrepreneurs slowly throttling the business over to the point where they're only designing outcomes for the business as opposed to doing any work.
0: Yeah, well, I, I like what you shared there. And um, how do you how do you see that this book is different than, you know, the E-Myth Revisited? This was like one of the first books in the industry that- was- I
1: love the E-Myth. And I, I would say that's a foundational must read. Um, and I'm, I'm friendly with Michael Gerber it was funny. Um, I won't say his exact words cause he's a, he's an eccentric in my opinion, but we're out to dinner. We both did a keynote at an event in Mexico. We're out to dinner. And I said, Michael, I, th- I think your book, if no one, if someone doesn't read your book, it's a fatal flaw. They got to read the Bible for entrepreneurship. But I said, I do have one challenge to it. And I said, I consumed it as a switch that I'm, he says, don't work in work on the business. And I said, um, the problem is I've never found that switch. My, my biggest company was on a run for $7 million when I sold it, and I am still working in the business so much. I said, I don't think it's a switch. It's a throttle. And uh, then he said some choice words, but in a loving, fun way. And then we talked about clockwork. And what I explained is in clockwork, I am showing the throttle of how to extract you. The, the thing is this. The analogy, this is not Michael Gerber's analogy, but the one that we all often use is that our business and ourselves is a parent-child relationship. I gave life to my business. Therefore, I'm its parent. I am nurturing the business with the intention and hope that one day it'll have its own legs and it'll come back and serve me. That's the parent-child relationship. I believe that's a fatally flawed analogy. I think it's conjoined twins. We start the business, we share, you know, we share a spinal stem, we share hearts and lungs, we share a soul. And therefore the disconnect from our business is a very slow methodical surgical process. You can do it. They separate conjoined twins but you need to very slowly separate in a throttling process. And that's why I explained in clockwork. The beauty of this is once you extract yourself from the business, you will always share the same soul. So you're always connected to your business and you as an owner have the right. You don't have to leave the business. If you want to reinsert yourself because that brings you joy, go back into the business, but selectively in the joyful components. But the only way you can ever get there is if you design the business to run itself.
0: So are you saying then that, that, the reason why I can join twins idea is better than the parent child, because then um, are are you saying that the business is actually giving you more earlier on? It's like, it's being a servant to you a lot earlier on than perhaps the e-myth methodology. Uh, The
1: the dependency, there's such a, such a strong intertwined codependency that we don't believe it. I think most entrepreneurs in the parent child analogy say, I'm just going to keep giving, keep giving. And it's naturally on its own miraculously going to grow. And that's not the reality. I know people that have been in this parent-child relationship for 20, 30 years. Imagine having a 30-year-old that you're still you know, feeding, um, and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Conjoined twins is the realization that as the business goes, so do you. So if the business has a bad day, you, entrepreneur, are having a bad day. And if you have a bad day at home, that business is having a bad day. That's how intertwined we are. And we have to realize there's this great codependency from day one. As the business and goes, we go, and so forth. So this, the extraction then is identifying where is the the strongest linkage now and how do we separate that link carefully and selectively? And and so it's permanently disconnected. And then we do the next one and the next one. And by slowly doing this, we extract ourselves. So now we can, and in the book, I argue people should do this, go on a vacation for four consecutive weeks and the business keeps humming along. In the parent-child relationship, you leave the business for four weeks, you come back and that business is starving. It's dying. It's like, where was my owner? So we want to break out of that codependency that exists.
0: Yeah. I love that. And you you know, it's something else that I have noticed about that, that the methodology of like the parent child, um, is that it's, it's, um, it's operating on this, this idea that like, you'll, you'll be able to get there someday. Like you'll be able to, so, so like work, 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 put your head down, you know, go lock yourself in a closet, systematize your business, then come out with like all ready to go. And then you can have it. But it's like, instead of saying, no, I'm going to have it now. Yeah. And um, really creating it right now.
1: Yeah. And that, that, that's the, that is the exact thing. The old method is the Mignana syndrome. I will get there. If I just bode enough time, the reality is you are there now and you must start acting on this. Now there is no, it, this can wait. We, we, we have to work on it. And if we choose not to, that's a right too. there'll always be that conjoined codependency. So you can start the separation starting immediately. It's going to take time you can pull it off or you can just keep on waiting, but there'll always be that code dependency.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, this also brings up another thing that is if like, you're always growing your business oh. as like, we'll get there someday. It's like, it's never enough. You're running this never enough pattern. And like, even when, when you are enough, even when you have a multiple seven figure company, that's very successful, very profitable. Like, I mean, I just saw that this, this week still like, you're not happy with it. It's not good enough. It will never be good enough.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's what I found. That's very succinctly put. It never will be good enough. And I think that thing is human nature. I've noticed for myself, as my business has grown, I'm like, we can do better than this. As my personal income has grown, I can do better. But here's one thing that I never want to be satisfied, and this is what keeps driving me on, is the fulfillment of my ultimate vision. Like, Eradicating entrepreneurial poverty is so big for me that it energizes me every single day. And there's a joy in knowing that it's such a big goal that I will get, I get fulfillment out of the pursuit of it. Um, Other goals, like, you know, I want to have that first million dollars in revenue. Well, when I hit that, it's like, this is it. And then I want to hit five million. This is it. Like, like those goals, I think are nice milestones, but they're not the great kind of light in the distance. (laughs) At least that's how I see it. So I am very energized and excited about the, the, that big mission and seeing momentum toward it. I get excited about my colleagues and stuff embracing it too, and seeing that's become more than me, and and how profit first and clockwork, how these books are playing out is now like, Mandy, you, you've been amazing at this. You, you know, you're embracing it; and it's becoming part of you. You're actually writing a book that that you know may eclipse it. Like like that's a beautiful thing. This these concepts and what the work that. I like to be involved in is something that's ultimately greater than me and, and lives on without me. And other people are taking it to levels that I could never take it to myself. Th- that to me is the ultimate joy and ultimately ultimate motivator. And because it will never be satisfied, it just keeps kind of churning in me.
0: Well, I love that. And I don't see that as in, from any place of lack. You're, you're growing no. it from this place of abundance and like, how much more can we add and how much more value? And that's, that's how you mobilize teams, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's almost, it's funny. I I almost wake up. I was talking to a colleague today. I almost wake up in desperation. Like (gasps) I wake up in the morning and say, there's not enough time to get all this done. Like we need more of us. Come on people. I'm, uh, I'm actually doing an event, I think in two weeks an author event. I'm teaching authors on, on how to write books from my perspective, what I've learned in the journey. I, I believe in authorship so, so much. I am really hoping other authors, more authors step up and listen, there's thousands of great authors out there. I want it to be hundreds of thousands of authors or, or, and there's these phenomenal books out there that aren't being discovered. Like we don't have much time on this planet. We got to get the word out. And, and if, if I ever felt that I'm the one person that needs to carry that message, I, I've set up a, a, for failure. We need an army of us, you know, moving forward on, on these big missions.
0: Yeah. Well, that will sign me up. That sounds like really right. a great event to be at. And you, you, you've done a really fantastic job of promoting your books too. I've noticed you have, you have hundreds of reviews and um, they're all five-star reviews. And, um, and that, that goes to show that you're, you're really good at, at uh, marketing your business and your ideas, but you've got to have something of substance that people really you have love, to. you know, and that's why you're, you have such great reviews of what you're doing.
1: I, you know, it's interesting. I, I met with a guy, this is about 10 years ago. I was writing my first book and he said, um, do you feel your work is better than some of the alternatives or many of the alternatives? And I said, yes. And I think anyone that believes in their own product and item should say yes to that. And I said, yeah, of course. He, he says, what do you think about the way people are marketing? And this, is, this was the high time of these info marketers. I'm like, it's slimy, it's gross. And, and listen, the book, a book is the definition of info marketing. Like that's the original info marketing piece. And I'm like it's slimy and it's charlatan with, you know, look at my fake jet behind me, my my fake rented Lamborghini. And like I, I want to hurl every time I see that. Because he goes, I want you to know, Mike, you have a responsibility to outmarket them. If you don't believe in what they're doing or the way they're doing it, it is your job to beat them because the customer is going to buy what they're aware of. They need this. And if they only are aware of the, you know, the fake Lamborghini guy, that's where they're gonna buy from. So step up put your big boy pants on and let's do this. And that was the slap to the face I needed. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to market this aggressively. Not, not manipulatively, but aggressively. I have the responsibility that if someone is in need of entrepreneurial help, and they're looking at a program, another book or my book, and I truly authentically believe that my book is the best to serve them, I have a responsibility to shout from the, the rooftops, this will serve you. So that's why I market so much.
0: Well, no, I love it. I love it. And I, I, um, I think that's fantastic. The thing is, is when you market a lot, then you can pick and choose who you want to work with and you can it's true.
1: also, it's true.
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm all about that. I'm, I'm very much for outbound, um, lead generation too, that, that some people would say is in your face. And I'm like, nope, I can pick and choose exactly who I work oh, with, who yeah. I my team works with, you know?
1: Yeah. So yeah. um,
0: all, I'm all about the aggressive marketing. So, so well done. Yeah, you know,
1: there, there, there's, there's two types of marketing, I believe. There's persuasive marketing and manipulative marketing. And I am a massive fan of persuasive marketing. I disdain manipulative. And this, the difference is very subtle. Persuasive is where a, a prospect, whoever it is, a reader or a client or whatever, is at point A and their best interest is to go to point B, but they are terrified of this and they're stuck. We need to use persuasive tactics, motivation, so forth, to move into point B, knowing is truly in their best interest. That's persuasion. Manipulation is their point A, and this is point C, and we uh, know that this is actually in their disinterest, that this would be hurtful for them and be taking money out of their pocket and actually not be of service. And then we move them to that point. That is manipulation. That's where it's intentionally to the advantage of the person selling, but to the known disadvantage of the client. And that really. That gets me irritable. So I use persuasive techniques to move people to, who I know will serve them even if they're afraid of doing it. And I have a responsibility to help them navigate that bridge.
0: I love it. That's a great distinction. So um, I know you have a resource to share. How can people find it? What is it and how can people find it?
1: Yeah, so right now I got a free copy of my book, Surge. So, uh, and when I say free, I mean 100% free, not like, you know, $7 shipping or any of that stuff. Like you can go to my website, it's mikemichalowicz.com. The shortcut's mikemotorbike.com because no (laughs) one can spell mcallowitz. My nickname in high school is Mike Motorbike. So go to mikemotorbike, as in the motorcycle.com, and you'll see free copy of Surge. Uh, All of my books, there's free chapter downloads if you want to explore that. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. You can get my articles there. I'm a podcaster and a blogger too.
0: Love it. All right. Well, if, if um, someone wants to reach out to you, how do they contact you?
1: Uh, go to the same website, mikemotorbike.com. Click on contact and uh, you can get hold of my team um, or myself directly.
0: Okay. Love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing so generously here, Mike. It's been um, a very fun, engaging podcast interview. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Oh, it's my joy. Thanks so much, Mandy.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hands Off CEO with Mandy Ellefson. If you want to work less and make more, make sure you subscribe and get a new episode every week and help spread the word by leaving a review.